May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be always acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. So at the early service, apparently I I started like this. And it became much better. Yes. Uh, <laughs> I want to talk to you this morning about this. Uh, actually, though, just the first few verses of the reading from Ephesians. And big idea today is the true church is one church. The true church is a united church. This is what Paul's message is as he goes forward. There's a story of a man who was stranded on a desert island, middle of the ocean, and finally a rescue group comes for him, and they find him, and there's three huts on the island. And they said, well, what are the huts? He said, well, that first hut is where I live, and the second hut is where I go to church. And they said, what's the third hut? He says, oh, that's where I used to go to church. Sad, but true. Uh, Ephesians 4 is a very practical chapter. It's really our response to what God has done for us. The first three chapters tend to be more theological, and this, these last three, four, five, and six, are practical in how to live out our faith. So it says, Paul, he says he implores us. He's begging us. He's on his knees that people will actually pay attention to what he's saying, and he wants us to walk in a manner worthy of our calling. Walk equals the way we live our lives. Does my life reflect the fact that I am a spirit-filled follower of Jesus Christ? I know I sound like a broken record with this, but does my life reflect the fact that I've given my life to him? From the time I get up in the morning until I put my head on the pillow at night, is that something I'm thinking about, living it out? And not everybody gets it right. Nobody's perfect. We all do things that probably don't reflect that during the day. At some point, we think things, say things, do things, or don't do things as we ought to. But generally speaking, uh, is that something that describes me as a follower of Christ? This walk is motivated. It's, it's really motivated out of a sense of gratitude for what God has done for us. He did it. He finished it all. It's not motivated out of a way to get merit or brownie points from God, because that's not what this is about. You know, we are who we are, and we do what we do because we belong to him, not because we're going to get something out of it. There's no calculation to this. It's just the way we live. So in this letter, the issue is unity, coming together despite our differences. So Friday night, Kathy and I drove down to Orlando, to a, an international Gideon's dinner at Shingle Creek Golf Club. Anybody ever been there? Ah, well, I'd never been there. It's really quite a place. They only had half the people this time, though, because of COVID. So in the big room where we, they served dinner, there were only 2,000 people instead of 4,000 people. And they only had 40 countries represented, you know, but it's this international idea that the gospel of Jesus Christ is all over the world. And it was amazing because this, uh, the testimony was given by a woman from India. Raised a Hindu her whole life, 
She grows up. Every day she's worshiping idols, the whole thing, very close to her family. And then somebody gives her a Bible. This is going to be real short. She starts reading Isaiah about idol worship. This hits her. She reads more of the Bible, ultimately gives her life to Christ. Her family wants nothing to do with her. They disown her. She goes to the States. She said, but before I left, I left a Bible on the top of a bookcase in the upper room of the house. You couldn't even see it, but I knew that God's word was there. I couldn't be there, but God's word was there. And it had been a long time since she spoke to her family, and she called her dad because she was feeling down, and she called, she said, explains how she's feeling, and he said, how can you feel this way? You have Jesus. What do you, what do you know about Jesus? He said, well, you know, a while ago I was, I was looking for something, and I found this book, and it was a Bible, and I started to read the Bible. She said, you, how did you read the You can't even read the paper. Your eyes don't work. Oh, I know, but I, somehow I can read the Bible. And your mother and I have come to faith in Christ. Keep praying. Don't give up. Despite our differences, you know, it was wonderful. Um, the source of our unity lies in what we share in common. You've heard me say that when we go to Africa, I'll go to a country church, they're all sitting on a dirt floor, and I'll say what we don't have in common, but what we do have in common is Jesus Christ. And they all go nuts, and they're all happy, because that's the truth. That one thing that we have in common overshadows all the things that we don't have in common, and that I have in common with people who live on my street who don't know Christ. But we have almost everything else in common. In the end, that all fades away, because this is the only thing that lasts only thing that lasts. The fact that we've each been especially equipped by God to be a blessing and a help to the church. We all have gifts. We all have gifts that we can bring. We can all uh, do something, share something, contribute something, even if it's prayer. And I don't want to say just prayer, because prayer is one of the most powerful things that we have that we can offer to the body of Christ to move this church and this congregation and ourselves in the direction that he wants us to go and become a powerful force for the kingdom of God. Prayer. Prayer, prayer, prayer. So in these few verses, we have five of the great basic attributes uh, of the Christian faith. Lowliness, meekness, patience, love, and peace. And Paul develops these just a little bit. Lowliness is humility. Um... Christians actually created this word because in their culture, humility was not a virtue. It was a sign of slavishness or it meant you were worthless. And so humility became uh, in the Christian world a virtue where it had not been a virtue before. Humble means not to think more highly of yourself than you ought to. It does not mean that you have no worth. It's not putting yourself out ahead of other people. So here's a, here's a contrast in humility. A large company feeling it was time for a shakeup hired a new CEO. This new boss was determined to rid the company of all slackers and show everyone what he was made of. On a tour of the facilities, the CEO noticed a guy leaning on a wall. The room was full of workers, and he wanted to let them know what he meant, that he meant business. The new CEO walked up to the guy leaning against the wall and asked, how much money do you make a week? A little surprised, the young fellow looked at him and replied, I make 300 a week. Why? The CEO then handed the guy $1,200 in cash and screamed, here's, here's four weeks' pay, now get out and don't come back. The 
feeling pretty good about himself, the CEO looked around the room and asked, does anyone know, want to tell me what that, that goof-off did around here? From across the room came the voice, pizza delivery guy from Domino's. <laughs> Not so much. Or, true story, Truly humble man is hard to find, yet God delights to honor such selfless people. Booker T. Washington, a renowned black educator, was an outstanding example of this truth. Shortly after he took over the presidency of Tuskegee Institute in Alabama, he was walking in an exclusive section of town when he was stopped by a wealthy white woman. Not knowing the famous Mr. Washington by sight, she asked if he would like to earn a few dollars by chopping wood for her. Because he had no pressing business at the moment, Professor Washington smiled, rolled up his sleeves, and proceeded to do the humble chore she had requested. When he was finished, he carried the logs into the house, stacked them by the fireplace. A little girl recognized him and later revealed his identity to the lady. The next morning, the embarrassed woman went to see Mr. Washington in his office at the Institute and apologized profusely. It's perfectly all right, madam, he replied. Occasionally, I enjoy a little manual labor. Besides, it's always a delight to do something for a friend. She shook his hand warmly and assured him that his meek and gracious attitude had endeared him and his work to her heart. Not long afterward, she showed her admiration by persuading some wealthy acquaintances to join her in donating thousands of dollars to the Tuskegee Institute. So, and that, he didn't, because that's just who he was. You know, that was, that was just, he wasn't doing anything out of the ordinary for him or something special. That's just who he was. Um, I think I've told you the story. When I was a brand-new ensign, I was 21 years old. I go aboard my first ship, Richard E. Byrd. I'm the anti-submarine warfare officer. I've got about 30 guys uh, that I'm over in charge of, and I'm new at this. I'm wet behind the ears. I don't know anything. You know, you can, you can go to these schools, but you can read a book about how to be a parent. How far did that get you? And I'm just, I'm in over my head, and, and about three months into this, my senior chief, Ralph Hunt, came to me and said, you want me to show, to show you how to do this? And I said, do what? He says, pretty much everything. And I said, I would be forever in your debt. And now I'm the guy in charge, but, but he has all the experience. He took me under his wing, and he showed me what, what was what, how to do it. <laughs> I was, it was great. I mean, absolutely. Now, guys, other guys in my position, their chiefs made the same offer. And you know what some of them said? I'm an officer. I don't need that. I don't need Navy. I'm an officer. Yeah, well, that didn't go well for them or the crew or the ship. A little humility goes a long way. Meekness. Meekness means it does not mean wimpy. It means power under control. That's what meekness means. In fact, when they were training a, a, a war horse, a, a horse for war in Greece, the final test of the horse was to pass a lighted torch under the horse. And if the horse stood its ground and didn't startle and didn't jump, it was said to be meeked, ready for battle. Okay? Not striking when you could. Not doing something Aristotle said it meant being angry at the right time in the right way for the right reason. Sounds like Jesus in the temple when he's throwing the money changers out. He got angry. 
But it was the right time for the right reason, and he did it in, in the right way. But it's the power to react against others but refusing to do so for the body of Christ. Hold your fire. You don't always have to fight. Patience. This is known as long-suffering. Christian patience is the spirit that never admits defeat. You don't give up. It will not be broken by any misfortune or defeat. The question is, how long is your fuse? Four men are driving cross-country together, one from Idaho, one from Iowa, one from Florida, and one the, la the last one's from New York. A bit down the road, the man from Idaho starts to pull potatoes from his bag and throws them out the window. The man from Iowa turns to him and asks, what are you doing? The man from Idaho says, man, we got so many of these darn things in Idaho, they're laying around on the ground, I'm sick of looking at them. A few miles down the road, the man from Iowa begins pulling ears of corn from his bag and throwing them out the window. The man from Florida asks, what are you doing that for? The man from Iowa replies, man, we got so many of these darn things in Iowa, I'm sick of looking at them. Inspired by the others, the man from Florida opens the door and pushes the New Yorker out. See, now, Steve is sitting in Charlie's seat. See, Charlie normally sits here, all right? Charlie is a retired New York cop. So I was going to, before the service, I was going to come up and tell Charlie I was going to do that, but I didn't mean him. I didn't mean him. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Now, on the positive side of that, Hebrews 12.1 tells us to run with endurance the race set before us. George Matheson wrote, we, we commonly associate patience with lying down. We think of it as the angel that guards the couch of the invalid, yet there is a patience that I believe to be harder, the patience that can run. To lie down in the name of grief, to be quiet under a stroke of adverse fortune implies a great strength. But I know of something that implies a strength greater still. It is the power to work under stress to have a great weight at your heart and still run, to have a deep anguish in your spirit and still perform the daily tasks. It is a Christ-like thing. The hardest thing is, the most, uh, is that most of us are called to exercise our patience, not in the sick bed, but in the street. To wait is hard, to do it with good courage is harder. Uh, all of us have something, some weight, some burden, something in our lives that we wish we didn't have physical, financial, relational, whatever it might be. Um, we wish it was different, but it's not. And chances are it's not going to change anytime soon. How am I dealing with it? How am I um, walking with it? Am I walking with it in a way that reflects the fact that I am a child of God, that I am a spirit-filled follower of Jesus Christ, and I'm not just and I'm not succumbing to one in danger, one in doubt, run in circles, scream and shout. You know, I'm, I'm walking through this and I'm trying to help people through it as well. Love. Four words in Greek for love. Eros, philos, storge, and agape. Now, eros is a word you don't find in the Bible. That's romantic love. Philos is brotherly love, band of brothers. Philadelphia, city of brotherly love. 
Storge is family, familial love, mom, dad, and the kids. And then there's agape. And this is another word that was kind of invented by the Christian writers because it's different than other forms of that word. And what it means is it's more a matter of a will. What you find in agape, love is a decision rather than emotion. It can be emotional. There's, there's emotion involved in it, but more often than not, it's a matter of the will. I will love you even if you don't love me back. You know, I have made a decision to love you despite some of the things that are going to happen. There was never anything like it before. No bitterness, no grudges, no resentment, no unforgiveness. It's agape. Someone has said, what is love? It is silence when your words would hurt. It is patience when your neighbors curt. It is deafness when a scandal flows. It is thoughtfulness for others' woes. It is promptness when stern duty calls. It is courage when misfortune falls. All those different things define it. And Paul says that we need to do this well with forbearance, putting up with one another. Um, did, you, did you ever notice that people are different? That not everybody thinks the way you do? Really? So Kathy and I are going to celebrate 48 years of marriage on Wednesday. 48. We're, we're different. I'm just saying. Who's married, who's married longer? You guys. You've been married, what, 80 years? Sixty-nine years of marriage. Look at these two. Sixty-nine years. You must have been married when you were like three. Man, oh man. People are different. And we gotta give people room to be themselves. All right? Forbearance. We can't expect everybody to think and act the way we do as we move through life. And if you can accept people for who they are as we walk through this life together, things are going to go a lot better and a lot easier. Talks about unity. That's hard work. It's not easy. Most of us are, are able to remember where we were on January 28th, 1986. January 28, 1986 is the day the Challenger blew up. Remember that? I was uh, in Annapolis. I was uh, t stationed at the Naval Academy. I was in my ki our kitchen. There was a little, remember that little TV we had on the shelf? And I was looking at that. I remember what I had on. I remember what I was having for breakfast. I was getting ready to go to work, and I'm watching the, the launch. 73 seconds into the launch, the whole thing blows up. You know what failed? An O-ring. An O-ring. How many millions of parts were there to the Challenger? And an O-ring failed. Sometimes it's just the smallest thing that goes wrong that destroys the whole thing. And that can happen in a church. It can happen in a family. It can happen in a business. It can happen in a community. So we have to be looking out for one another and making sure that the parts that we're responsible for are working and helping one another see that the parts that they're responsible for are working as we move forward in life. Because it doesn't take much to scrap the whole thing. Bond of peace, it means right relationship with God, with others, and self. Those, that's the big three. What is my relationship like with God? 
Am I taking care of it? Do I pay attention to it? You know, I always say God has two numbers, 411 and 911. I'll call him if I want to know something, and I'll call him if there's an emergency. But other than that, I'm on my own. I'm doing pretty well. I'll let you know if I need you. No. No. We start our day with God. We end our day with God, and all through the middle as well. Hopefully, it's a natural thing that we're related to him. Our prayer life reflects it. The way we think reflects it. The second thing is we have a relationship with the people in our lives. How are we getting along with, our, with other people? Are we doing these kind of, are we giving them space? Are we giving them room? Or do we, and then ourselves. I think a lot of people are too hard on themselves. We're too hard on ourselves. And we need to see us more the way God sees us. You know, followers as his kids, his children. says we're one body, one holy Catholic and apostolic church, Catholic, small c, universal, okay, one universal church. We had a wonderful relationship with Living Waters for 10 years. Worldwide Church of God, Cleveland, Tennessee, all one word, by the way, and we dubbed ourselves Anglo-Costals as we kind of, and they learned from us and we learned from them. And it was an amazing relationship. We may look different on Sunday, but underneath we're the same. We share the same faith. Um, Friday night, I got to sit next to an African-American pastor from Mount Dora. His name is Danny McKay. And he's got a Baptist church there. And he was a senior. He was a retired. He was a senior chief in the Navy. Fire uh, radioman. And uh, we, we just had a lot of, to talk about. We talked about faith. We talked about race relations. We talked about a lot of different things. But underneath, we were the same. We were connected because we're brothers in Christ. It didn't matter what we looked like. It didn't matter that I'm an Anglican and he's a Baptist. We're brothers in Christ. That's what made the difference. And it was just a God-ordained connection. You, know, you walk in, you have no idea where you're going to sit, and they pop you down, and here he was. And it was just a great night. And I was thinking about this as I was talking to him. I, I, I guarantee you, in the 2,000 people, I was the only guy with a black suit and a collar on at the Gideon dinner. I will say that. Not too many Anglicans. One spirit. Without breath, the body dies. So this morning, Tom is sitting here and Liam is sitting here. And the, the, uh, the word for spirit is noima, right? So I'm saying, I don't know if it's panoima, noima, and Tom says, pneuma. And Liam goes, it's pneuma, dad, P-N, pneuma. And I'm going, oh, like pneumonia, not panomia. Ah, now I get it. I told Tom I give him credit for, for squaring me away. Never too late to learn stuff. Um, there is no church without the Holy Spirit. One of the things I explained to Danny that night was about three streams. Three streams of sacrament, scripture, and spirit. And he goes, wow, that's quite, that's quite the combination. I said, it works. Sacrament, scripture, Holy Spirit. You know, that's what makes it what it is. One hope. 
one hope in our call, and this is the hope of salvation and a world converted to Christ. Really what we're talking about there is the Great Commission, that we would go into the world and preach that gospel and baptize people in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. One Lord, our one Lord is Jesus Christ. One faith, faith in Jesus and the gospel, John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son to the end that all that believe in him should not perish but have eternal life. One baptism, you can be all over the map with baptism. What does it mean? When do you do it? Who does it? But Jesus says, baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is the active agent in baptism, whether it's an infant or whether it's somebody who just gave their life to Christ and you dunk them in the river. The Holy Spirit is the active agent in that. One God and Father of all. One God for all people. God is the Father of all, above all, through all, and in all. We live in a God-created, God-controlled, God-sustained, God-filled world. And if we ever needed unity, we need it now. If God's people ever needed to, to kind of be working together and walking together and marching together, given what's going on in the culture, we need it now. And we need to be together and united as one as we move forward and we face these challenges that are facing the church and the country and the world. We're working to unite churches in Ocala to do the same thing, to get people more aware of what's happening and what's going on so that we can find ways to meet that and make a difference in the community. And it, it has to be with being united. It doesn't have to do with looking like the same, but it's having the same heart and the same understanding of the faith and the same desire to come together as the body of Christ to make a difference in this place. Just listen to this.
true church is one church. May it be so.